Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I'm the host of the show where I get to interview Olympic athletes on their story and path to the games. Today, incredible guest, David Wise, two-time Olympic gold medalist in freestyle skiing halfpipe. David was such a cool guest. He has so many things going on just with his family and how he he navigates his career and some of the things that he's been able to do throughout his time in freestyle skiing and what he's been able to accomplish there, but also what he's been able to accomplish outside of sports as well. So David is an awesome guest. I know you guys and girls will enjoy this one. So please, without further ado, David Wise. All right. Today, special guest, David Wise, two-time Olympic gold medalist, USA skiing discipline, halfpipe, born June 30th, 1990 in Reno, Nevada. Nailed awesome. It. Nailed it. All right, we're good. It only <laughs> took me 15 times. Uh, he started skiing at the age of three, started skiing professionally at the age of 18. David's been on the USA ski team since 2012, which was actually its inception, the free skiing team. Uh, that was its inception. He won two golds, as I said, for in half pipe and skiing for the first two times that the event was held at the Olympics, 2014 in Sochi, 2018 in Pyeongchang. He has also won four gold medals at the X Games and even won a gold medal at World Championships. David, I appreciate you hanging out with me today, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Glad oh, please, please, please. It's all my pleasure. I'm the one that gets to talk to the Olympic athletes on a daily basis um, and just ask you some random ass questions. So let's rock and roll with this, man. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, Reno, Nevada. Um, I, I don't really know much about Nevada in general or Reno. Um, where Are there mountains there? I have to assume, right? <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that question a lot. A lot of people think, oh, Reno. So that's like right next to Vegas, right? Yep. And uh-huh. Uh, it's made about a seven and a half hour drive away. Oh, Whoa, okay. Um, whereas we're on, on different ends of the state, which is a pretty big, wide open, deserty mm-hmm. state. Um, <clears throat> but Reno's only 45 minutes away from Lake Tahoe. So, you know, I live right, I live right on the California border. Uh, everything to the, to the west or to the east of me is desert and everything to the west of me is forest. So we're kind of on that convergence point. And that's where Lake Tahoe is. Uh, lots of good skiing around Squaw Valley, you know, which hosted the Olympics in, I think it was sometime in the early 60s. And um, I should know that off the top of my head, but I don't, which I think it was 62, maybe. Anyways, um, obviously a, a pretty, you know, pretty strong skiing background in this area. And yeah, grew up skiing here and didn't think anything of it. It makes sense. Yeah, me being an East Coaster, um, all of Nevada is. Las Vegas, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I guess like most of the world, people are like, not a, oh, not Nevada, on. so Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not on purpose. I guess that's just me being a little ignorant on geography and and uh, really everything that's always going on in the country. But I know Lake Tahoe. I've heard of that a couple of times. Haven't been. Yeah. Heard great things. Um, so clearly, uh, it does make sense that you were able to to start skiing. And I know your dad was um, very into skiing. Tell us about that, and I guess how you got into skiing and really what it meant um, to be able to do that with him from such a young age. Yeah, I mean, we uh, looking back on it, that's something I, I'm super thankful for. But when I was when I was in it as a kid, it just seemed like normal, it seemed like real, you know, just what we did as a family. We would go skiing every weekend. Um, I have sister, twin sisters that are four years older than me, and my dad he raced in college, so skiing was always super important to him. My mom's my mom's my grandfather on my mom's side owned a ski resort up in up in uh, Eastern Oregon, so it was just part of part of what we did you know we didn't really think anything of it we uh, I started skiing when I was three my dad likes to joke about the the fact that I started skiing I had to start skiing because I wasn't potty trained yet and the daycare wouldn't take me so he had to just take me out skiing with him 
Um, so that's his favorite way of explaining how, how young I started skiing. It's just because I, I, I had to tag along. And it never seemed like it was out of the ordinary. Now looking back on it, I'm really thankful. I'm like, wow, that's cool. I got to ski from a younger age than most people do. But it was just just daily life for us. And um, I was always the kid who was jumping off things. Um, back in the day when I first started skiing at Sky Tavern, just outside Reno, uh, it was uh, jumping was against the rules. You had to keep them skis on the surface. And so I was always a kid who I got my pass pulled numerous times for jumping off the chairlift and jumping off of things. Uh, I learned to kind of, you know, do it in the background where it couldn't be seen. And that's how I, that's how I got my start. My, like I said, my dad's ski race in college and um, he kind of hoped that I think he secretly hoped that that would be my career path as well. He wanted me to race and I started out racing and my sisters raced before me. So it seemed like it was kind of set in stone, but <clears throat> just wasn't, I, I enjoyed going fast. That's one of the things I love most about skiing, but I liked being off the ground more than I liked going fast. So, uh, I always had this pull to the, to the free skiing stuff. Um, I started, I, so when I was 11, I convinced my dad to let me try, uh, the out for the freestyle team and his, his role is like, okay, I'll let you try this, but you have to, you have to race and do freestyle for one year. And then, then we'll, we'll reassess from there. And I made it about halfway through the year before I was like, dad, I don't, I don't care, man. I'm, I want to do this freestyle thing. That's I'm in. And it was hard for him because I was not very successful. And I mean, you know, I had just started it that year. I was in the, I was in the bottom, bottom third of the pack as far as competing in moguls and aerials and all those other events. Uh, meanwhile, I was, I was in the top five in the state uh, in, in slalom GS. So here I want to abandon something that he sees me being successful at for something that I'm terrible at. And it didn't really make a lot of sense to him, but I, I, I give him props for just sticking by me and let me, let me give it, a, give it a go. And obviously it worked out. That is awesome. Yeah. That takes a lot uh, from a parent. I mean, to just kind of, I mean, you being a parent now, like understanding, obviously your kids are a little bit, a little bit younger, but um, you know, just, just that trust and like, okay, I, I promise son, you're really not that good. No dad, no dad, this is more fun. I want to do this. So like, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome that he was able to do that. And it, at least there's still this connection of you're still on skis, right? It's, it's not yeah. like you're completely abandoning. It's not like you went to snowboard, right? Oh my gosh. No, I'm kidding. But um, you know, that's, that's always nice. And you guys will still have that connection. So I think that that's, that's very important. So you eventually started professionally at 18. Now, what does, I guess, I, I've talked to multiple skiers at this point now, mm -hmm. and, and professionally is a very ambiguous-ish term. Very. What exactly at 18, what did professionally skiing mean? Was that just your way of saying, oh my gosh, I can make a dollar doing something that I love? Is that kind of how you just got into it? Yeah, I mean, it, everybody has their own definition for what professional means. Some people define it by having a paying contract or some people define it by having your own signature line. I think in, in sports like skateboarding or, or um, BMX, on the, those, I don't know, it's maybe more, more closely defined. I know, that, I know that in skating, skateboarding, you're not truly a professional until you have a signature product with a major manufacturer. That's their way of saying, okay, you're mm -hmm. a professional. But in skiing, they're like very few people ever get, ever get to that point. So um, my definition has always been you're making more money than you're spending on skiing. So um, a lot of people, will, as soon as they sign their first paying contract, whether it's $10 or $500, they're like, I'm a professional. I got a contract. I don't really see that as true. Like I didn't define myself as a professional skier until I was actually making money off of skiing. I wasn't, I was, I was still spending, uh, 
all kinds of money traveling around, but I was actually making more off of skiing than I was putting into it. That's when I just decided I was a professional skier. And ironically, when I was 18, I told my dad, um, he had been supporting supportive of me. My family was always supportive of my career. Um, but I told him, I was like, okay, America says I'm a grown man now. That means that I can't take money from you and, and really still be following my dreams. So when I turned 18, I said, all right, pops, I'm not taking any more money from you. Uh, I'm not gonna let you support me in monetarily. I'm going to, I'm going to either make it as a professional skier or I'm not. And that was kind of my, you know, that was my year that I was like, all right, that, this is, this is either going to work out or I'm going to move on to something else. And, uh, luckily, like I said, it, it worked out in the long run. I'd say it kind of worked out for you. That's awesome, man. That's very, uh, I mean, at 18 to have that kind of a, a mindset, that's, I mean, that's the only way to do it, right? Push yourself off the, jump off the cliff. If you get caught, you get caught. Yeah. If not, I mean, Hey, it was, at least you tried, right? So I think that that's pretty incredible. And, um, I guess me at 26, don't tell my parents what you did at 18. And uh, I think they'll be, they'll just, you know, ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Hopefully they, they don't <laughs> listen to this one particularly, yeah. but um, that, that's awesome, man. And when, Luckily, like you said, it, it, I can't take all the credit for it. Having worked out, it just did. I jumped yeah. off the cliff and I could fly, Hey man. but, there, but there's no guarantee. There was no guarantee when I did that, that I was going to be able to fly, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think my old man expected to see me back. <laughs> um, I turned I turned 18, graduated high school, and then the following summer I left for New Zealand, and um, I've, I've spent three months in New Zealand. I think he expected me to move in, move back back home when I came back, and I was just like, nope, I told you I'm not coming back. That's awesome. Until the bank account's at what, negative a thousand, then maybe we'll talk about it. But exactly. until then, and clearly you never hit that point. So man, congratulations there. That's, that's just incredible. There were some dry times. There were some oh. ramen and some couches along the way, but... <laughs> But we got through. I'm sure there was. I'm sure there was. So, um, again, going back to to starting at 18 professionally, when were when were some of your first? I guess immediately it sounds like you went to New Zealand. What were some of these first events like? When you are in this situation, so you understand you have to be lean, but you have to go to these events to make money, right? So, how did you deal with that? And then understanding of well, the higher that I finish, the more money I get paid along the way. And like, how did you float with those pressures and, and all those emotions, especially at 18, dealing with all that um, kind of on your own, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough balance because um, you do have to do well to make money. Um, but, but approaching events from that, that's from, with that perspective, mm-hmm. usually it doesn't translate to doing well. You know, when you tell yourself you have to finish on the podium in order to basically keep the lights on in the house, um, that adds, that adds more pressure than you already have. Competing is already hard enough. And then you're adding this, uh, monetary pressure to yourself. Um, and it didn't, it didn't go very good for me for the first couple of years. Like I said, there was some dry times and, and from, um, 18 to about 21, I would say I barely made enough to keep the lights on. You know, it was, it was never, I, my, my overwhelming success didn't really start until after my daughter was born. And I kind of got this new perspective on competition and um, stopped pressuring myself quite so much. You know, I was more, um, at that time, I finally realized, hey, at the end of the day, my wife and my little girl don't really care if I'm successful or not. They just want me to be a good husband, good father. You know, they just want, they just want daddy. and all of a sudden I was able to take the pressure off myself. So um, it's interesting you bring that up because um, yeah, it really was actually detrimental to probably in the short term detrimental to my skiing career to be so dependent on my contest winnings or, uh, or basically success 
in the game um, because it didn't translate for me. I, I overpressured myself. I would land 10 runs out of 10 in practice, go into the contest and crash twice. Mm-hmm. And um, it basically, pretty much for those years, it took me almost the entire season uh, to figure my head out. And then usually the last couple of events of the year, I'd, I'd squeak out a couple of podiums. It'd be like crash, 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 podium, podium, podium. That was like, that was the standard for those seasons. Uh-huh. For me. And then my little girl was born and I realized, why do I care so much? You know, I stopped caring quite so much what people thought of me. I stopped caring quite so much what my competitors were doing. And I, and I just realized, Hey, I'm lucky to be able to do this. I'm just going to go out there and, and enjoy the ride. And that's when I, you know, that's when I won, won my first X games. And then I won three X games in a row and right into the Olympics. So, um, yeah, it's interesting how that all played out because, uh, now having overcome that, that sort of mental, I was, I was mentally crippled because I, which it was partially self-inflicted because mm-hmm. I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make this as a professional. I'm not going to take any money from anybody. Like I'm going to do this on my own. So I put pressure on myself and, and then I had to fight my way through that. Having come out the other side of that, um, I feel like I have a mental advantage because I know, I know why I was not performing well at that time. And I know what I had to do to overcome that um, sort of mental deficit that I had. So uh, it's been a really interesting journey for sure. It sounds like it, man. And yeah, I always, cause uh, I'm, I'm in business myself as well. And you know, it's one of those things, if you put too much pressure on yourself, it's a negative, but there is that fine line of just enough pressure to be like, well, Hey, I do have to live, right? I need to eat food. Yep. You, you don't really need lights on, but you definitely need to eat food. So there is, in my opinion, for me, at least there, there is that perfect amount of pressure, that fine line where if you go a little too far, it, it becomes detrimental, as you said. And if you're not pressured enough, then you're kind of like, well, I'm comfortable. Everything's fine. It's not that big a deal. So I'm always curious how people deal with it um, in business. But I mean, you were your business at that point, you know, your business was skiing and you were your product essentially. So yeah. I was kind of curious and, and, and I appreciate that nice little insight into what went on for those three years. And then after, um, and then also hearing about your daughter, I mean, hearing fathers talk about when they first have their kids or, or parents in general hearing when they talk when they have their kids they do feel a weight lifted off um, which I always think is interesting because I don't have kids and I don't really understand how that works because <laughs> I don't have kids but I'm sure anyone listening that did can be a hundred percent that's totally true so I'm, I'm, I'm always I'm always interested in hearing about that and as you said once that extra pressure was lifted um, you started to get enough money that you could as you said call yourself professional you have your daughter, um, and then you just start seeing some immense success. I mean, you won, what, three X Games in a row, was it? Mm-hmm. Three X Games in a row. In that time, if I'm not mistaken, you won um, a podium at World Championships as well, correct? Yep. So just, I mean, not out of nowhere. It was a Yeah, sure. it was clearly like you were rocking it, dude. Like I look at your Wikipedia page, and it was just gold medals down the side of it. And I was like, all right. So clearly he knows what he's doing. And then even as you said, you then took all of that right into the Olympics. So what was it? What was it like when you started to see some of that success and, and I mean, immense success, let's be honest about it. And, and how did you kind of deal with that emotionally again, not getting going from pressure to ego, not having too much of a big head, but also understanding your place within uh, the skiing world? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of comes down to um, sort of the difference between uh, hopes and expectations, right? Um, when I was early in my career and I was, and I was really struggling, I had all these expectations of myself. It's like, I expect myself to do, to get a podium here or to land this trick there. Um, but when I switched that mentality and I started embracing 
just the journey and being excited about just doing my job, being able to go out and do what I love to do for a living. Um, all of a sudden I had hopes. And, and like you said, you still need to be hungry. If I, if I was to at that time say, oh, you don't need to feel any pressure. Your family loves you. It's all good. That wouldn't have been very healthy either. Cause mm -hmm. I like, we were, I feel like I was made to compete. Like that's, that's just part of who I am. Um, so I was still hungry, but I wasn't expecting myself. I wasn't expecting anything beyond what was in my, in my own control. It's like, I expect myself to go out there and give it everything I have. And beyond that, I can't, I can't create any expectations or else I'm just going to be disappointed. So, um, that's kind of how I approached that first X games. And, and that was, and because I won, you know, when, when I, when I had this mental sort of, um, revolution, uh, and I won that first X games, then I had like this amazing standard set for myself. Like, okay, remember, no matter what happens in your life, you were thinking like this when that first one happened. And so I kind of had this, uh, building block to build off of, uh, going into the next couple of years of success. And one of the main things that I could tell, tell anybody is that it's important, whether it's um, business success or, um, you know, financial success or whatever it is, you have to remember to surround yourself by people who care about who you are, not just what you do. And that was immensely important for me in skiing because uh, the reality is when you start winning X Games, especially when you win an Olympic gold medal, all of a sudden you start, people start kind of hanging on to you they kind of start hanging around you uh just to see what they can what they can benefit from from you and those people who who weren't there and don't really care about who you are they just really they only care about what you've done or what successes you've had um they're not really good for you in the long run because at some point that success is going to go away and all of a sudden those people aren't going to be there to to depend on so um, part of my ability to stay humble for, for one thing was that I always had my wife and daughter there depending on me. And, and that was a really concrete, um, anchor to me as you know, I could never get too, I, I never could get too big of a head cause I still had to go home and change diapers. You mm -hmm. know, it was just like real life never, never went away for me. So, um, and just like I said, con continuing to be surrounded by the people who cared about me long before I ever had any of those successes. Obviously, I've made new friends since, and some of them are really meaningful, but I still also have those those people who were there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that, man. Yeah, if you have to change diapers, there's there's only so many places you can go from there, right? So that, yeah. that's, a pretty, that's a pretty solid way to feel humble. I like the way you think about that. Um, but yeah, I just think, again, that run you had for, what was that, three or four years is just absolutely incredible, man. You just raked it in as it you said hot, time, I mean sure. hot, hot streaks usually don't last that long for multiple years so I would have to say that that was uh, uh pretty incredible on your part and uh, I, I just love hearing about it what was what was the first gold medal like the first x games right I think that was when you got your first gold what I mean what was that feeling like under the lights um all those people there I mean just just the whole atmosphere what was it like finishing and, and realizing like hey like I'm the best here there's no one above me <laughs> yeah just talking about the well, you know the first gold medal where whether it's um my first x games gold medal my first world championships gold medal my first olympic gold medal all of those kind of have they, they kind of go in the same category in my brain or in my memory bank of um sort of surprise like i i really feel like i the the main um feeling i have about those is sort of this sense of like just wonder 
so almost bewildered, like, wow, that really happened? Like, you're really gonna put that on me? Um, and that kind of relates to what I was talking about earlier with the expectations, because um, when I switched from expectations to hope, I no longer expected to win things. You know, it was more of like, well, I hope to land this run, and I hope that if I do land this run, then the judges are going to reward it. But, but I had zero expectations. I didn't go in saying, if I land this run, then the judges have to give me this score. Mm -hmm. It was more of, um, you know, I'm just going to go out there and do what, I, do what I feel like I was made to do and see how the cards fall. So at the end of the day, when I did win, I was surprised. I was like, wow, oh, cool. And it was so much healthier of a, of a way to go through that process for me um, because, yeah, I, I wasn't, I, I was able to just enjoy it. Um, I think that people who get a little too entitled when they start having success, they almost have this attitude of like, yeah, finally, like, I know I've deserved this for a long time. Now you guys finally gave it to me. And, and instead for me, it was more like, wow, cool. You want to give that to me? Sure. Right. I'll take it. All right. <laughs> I love that, man. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way. Um, you know, I like the way you think about things. I love your mental, mental, uh, mental mapping and, and attitude about a lot of that stuff is very important. I think, I think mentally, what we think and what we do uh, contributes a lot more to our successes than, um, you know, a lot of other things like uh, connections or, or the best sales script or any of those things or, or the best run. I think most of it has to do with the mental side of, of what you're doing and, and how you're, uh, how you're giving back to the universe. I truly believe in some of that stuff. So um, let's, let's go to the Olympics now, 2014. So the, the Olympics, the U S free ski team, as we talked about in 2012 was, is now uh, the United States. They created the United States free ski team. You were, you were in it since inception. Um, the 2014 games come around. It's the first time that half pipe was included in the Olympics, correct? So what was that whole process like um, getting into, I mean, getting onto the team, obviously you've been doing pretty well up to this point, but getting onto the team, qualifying, going to the games, having it the first, like how it was that whole experience? Cause I know it's a, it's a, it's a long time period. And I don't expect you to sum it up in like two minutes, but I mean, what was that whole experience like? And, and I guess what were some of the things that you were going through during that time? Cause it is a little bit longer of a time period. Yeah. So what's crazy about the whole Olympic journey for me is when I really got into um, half pipe or free skiing in general, I sort of was giving up that Olympic dream because, um, you know, having grown up in a ski racing family, having competed in moguls and aerials, um, I had, I had already participated in a lot of Olympic skiing sports, mm -hmm. but I always liked half pipe more than any of those. I always liked half pipe slope style and big air. Like those were the, my main, my favorite three. And when I really embraced that and decided to try to become a professional skier in those disciplines, um, there was no Olympics for us. And, and there really was no guarantee there ever was going to be an Olympics. So um, I was sort of saying, I like these, I like this sport enough to give up on this dream of going to the Olympics. Cause the reality is I had that dream since I was a kid, ever since I watched my first Olympics on TV, I wanted to go to the Olympics and I gave that dream up to pursue this sport that I loved. But I also was, you know, one of the few driving um, personalities towards getting it included in the Olympics because um, we had to go to a lot of events along the way that sometimes weren't very well organized and the judging was terrible uh, in, in order to get the Olymp International Olympic Committee, the IOC, to recognize our sport. We had to go to, um, I mean, the first world championships were awful. Uh, quite a few of the World Cups early on were just poorly run, poorly judged. 
Um, usually the venues were, you know, subpar. Essentially, we could have been competing in just the professional events, due tour, X Games, um, the, like the Gravity Games and all those early competitions, and we would have had much better competition, like the competitions mm-hmm. would have just been better. But because I cared and a couple of my friends cared about getting the sport recognized by the Olympic Committee, uh, we went to those events and we brought our personalities to it. So I got to see it come full circle. It's like, here's the sport that I love. I'm going to give up the Olympics for it. Uh, but then I got to be as an, as an influencer in the game, um, one of the guys who brought the attention back to our sport for the Olympics. And then I got to see it get into the Olympics, got to be a part of the first ever U.S. free skiing team and all of these things. So it was, it was really a long time coming, you know, for me, it was like this huge journey and having it come to sort of a culmination. Um, as soon as I made that, that first Olympic team, uh, I felt like I had already done, I already accomplished, it was a lifetime accomplishment for me. Um, the pressure was off from that point forward because um, I got to be on the first ever Olympic halfpipe team, mm-hmm. you know, ski, ski, Olympic ski halfpipe team. And um, it's not, it's really, it's almost harder. We talk about this a lot on the U.S. team. It's almost harder to make the team than it is to do well in the Olympics because um, if you take a sport like ours where more than half of the top 16 guys in the world are um, mm-hmm. – are us guys it uh sorry my microphone was wigging out there for a second um where more than half of the uh, the the best guys in the world are are americans and then you got to cut that field down to four you know only, there's only four spots in the olympics mm-hmm. um that's a really challenging thing to overcome so like i said when i when i made that team it was like man pressure's off like i can't believe it i get to go i get to go you know, walk through the opening ceremonies, be part of the Olympic team. Um, it was such a cool, just lifetime accomplishment. And then, like I said, like, you know, I, I really did feel the pressure was off and I got to go out there and just enjoy the sport. Um, we had some pretty awful conditions in Sochi, uh, competition wise. Uh, but I've always kind of been one of the guys who excels in the, we call them, you know, the bad weather competitions because I'm a little heavier than everybody else. And um, I can carry my weight through the slow snow a little bit better than everybody else. And so, um, you know, that was an advantage that played, played to played into my success for sure. And yeah, got to not only be a part of the first ever Olympic team, but take home the first ever Olympic gold medal was pretty amazing. I'd still, I, I throw it in the same category with this, um, disbelief you know it's like wow i can't believe that actually happened Mm -hmm. yeah man i mean that's just if if that's not a movie i mean seriously like that's (laughs) such a full circle like obviously since a young age wanting to go giving up on that dream because you loved something so much and then kind of part way through you were like wait a second maybe it is possible let's go as hard as we possibly can go to some of these awful awful events with as as you said poor conditions poor judging just to say hey no this is worth it people will watch yeah our Um, sport is polished you guys should you guys should care and then yeah being being on the forefront of that i just think that is absolutely incredible and then i mean going I'm making the team, as you said, with some of the the best athletes in the world um, on the United States team and not everyone can make it. Um, And then going and and winning, man. I mean, that is just super incredible. I just, I I love it so much. So tell us about the experience of, of Sochi aside from the, the, the racing, obviously, again, you, you went into that a little bit, but just the, the, the atmosphere there, the opening ceremonies, tell us all about that. Cause I mean, not everybody got to go to two Olympics. Let's remember that. So, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're in a very special position. So the first one, you can't assume you're going to another one, right? Like 
obviously you can hope as yeah. you said, but you never know what's going to happen in four years. So what did you do? How much did you try and take in and really just enjoy the experience, but make sure your head was on straight, excuse me, for the racing as well? Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges um, about the Olympics. And, you know, one of the things that I feel like uh, as somebody who's experienced it, I can, I can kind of add insight to, to guys who are going for their first time is um, the Olympics is unlike anything else you've ever experienced. And, and having a long career, I feel like I've experienced just about everything there is to experience competition wise and, you know, gone to all the events that they, that exist basically in my sport. And like I said, there's nothing like the Olympics. It's, there's so much more attention. There's so much more hype. There's so much more exciting things happening around you. It is really hard to stay focused. Um, and, I don't know, but the, at the same time, there's there's like this, there's just this spirit of the games that follows the Olympics around that is such an honor to be a part of. I mean, to be honest with you, I never once cared about curling or ice skating or ice dancing or, um, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of those events that I ended up becoming a fan of. Mm -hmm. I mean, luge, bobsled, like those things never mattered to me at all until I became part of the Olympic team. All of a sudden, I met these guys guys and gals who are part of team USA and I cared because they were a part of the same thing I was. And I just, you know, made friends and got to go and watch their events, you know, got to go watch the women's hockey team do well. Um, I got to watch, I, I got to watch the, the U S women's hockey team, uh, have heartbreak in Sochi and then come around turn around and, and have just, you know, the greatest, you know, shoot off of all time in Pyeongchang. So, um, there's like, like I said, there's this spirit that follows the games around that, that you, you can't help, you can't deny it. Like, it's just part of, it's part of being, being on the Olympic team. Um, so I enjoyed the experience. I went, I went to the opening ceremonies, which is one of the most overwhelming, especially the, the ones uh, in Sochi. We were, we, I feel like for whatever reason, I felt like I was a little closer to what was going to like the action in Sochi than we were in Pyeongchang. And it was like, sensory overload i mean just the most crazy things that you could imagine are going on in front of you and and the crowd is massive and um you can you're kind of aware of the fact that all this is on tv and it's just like this otherworldly experience uh but then you got to turn around and, and do a couple runs through the half pipe like you do every day you know every weekend of your life and it was a really interesting contrast so i i kind of I embraced it. I knew I needed to enjoy being part of the Olympic team because that might be as good as it ever got for me. Um, but at the same time, I was like, no, I need to, I also need to stay focused if I can. So I kind of did early on, we, we went in Sochi two weeks before our event. And so I spent the first week kind of enjoying the experience going and seeing everything. And then I really shut things down. I was like, okay, I've experienced it now. And now I'm going to get back in my zone. So I, I spent the, this, the second week, you know, just really like doing a lot of visualizing, not going a lot of places, you know, just kind of calmed everything down. And that I feel like helped me stay focused for my event. Um, and then afterwards I got to go back to living it up, experiencing mm -hmm. it, enjoying it. So, um, you know, obviously there's only one guy who gets to walk home with a gold medal and that was me. So my experience should have been pretty good, but it really was, it was amazing. It's something I'll never forget. Yeah, man. I mean, just especially because again, so many athletes only get the opportunity to go to one, whether it's, it's timing. I mean, when you're born really comes down to a lot of this stuff too, oh. when you think about it, because it's such, it's, there's a four year gap and sometimes you're, 
just a little too young and sometimes you're just a little too old and and you yep. usually hit that sweet spot once so i mean lucky you you got to do it twice but that first one um especially because it was the the inaugural event or the inaugural time that half pipe was included and, and you really got to enjoy that part of it i think just makes it much more special and as you said only one guy comes down with a gold and Hey, David, it was you. Look at that. It was Not me. too bad. So um, pretty, pretty cool, man. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So one question I had, um, between 2014 and 2018, uh, I couldn't find that much information on you, man. I, I promise you that. I mean, what were you doing uh, for that? I mean, you weren't just sitting on the couch for those three years. I hope people realize that our Olympic athletes are, uh, uh, they're working pretty darn hard that whole time. But I guess what was going on during that time period um, but between uh, Sochi and Pyeongchang? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, what's cool, or what was has been really cool for me uh, through going through that experience, um, those years between the two Olympics were were some of the um, I wouldn't explain, I wouldn't describe them as the worst years of my life, but they were some of the most difficult years of my life. Mm -hmm. um, my sister lost her leg in two thousand and in two thousand fifteen. Um, <clears throat> just so many uh, like difficult things happened consecutively to me. My, uh, my wife lost her dad. We had, we just, just had this string of deaths in our family. Um, I had some injuries. I had a really, a major concussion, um, that I struggled to, to overcome for almost a year and just all these, these difficult times that, uh, sort of made me both appreciate the high times and also just appreciate health and family and, mm -hmm. and, you know, the things that I had that were outside of the, of the success. Cause like I said, once you win an Olympic gold medal, all of a sudden a lot more people care what you have to say or what you think or, wh or where you're going, what are you doing? What are you wearing? All this attention that just was so foreign to me. Uh, the reality is most professional skiers, people care about them for about two weeks a year, if that, you know, mm -hmm. But um, the Olympics was all of a sudden so much more attention than I was used to. And then I went, like I said, through this, this um, difficult time and uh, really had to dig down deep and, and, and remember who I was and what was really important to me. And uh, like I said, having, come, having gotten through those difficult times, my wife and I, we look back on those times and, and a lot of people, I think, would look at it on paper and say, oh, that was a really bad time in your life. But... Um, we kind of just embraced it and we realized that we could be joyful uh, even in the difficult times. And um, so we look back on it and we, and I'm thankful for it. I mean, we, we say that those were some of the best, best moments of our life, especially of our life together, because uh, I realized she had my back and I had her back more than, more than anything else could have ever taught us. Uh, so all of a sudden, you know, monetary success, you know, financial success, uh, just, just uh, success on paper. My resume didn't need any more ticks on the ticks in the box because um, I realized I had more than more than I ever would have. Um, so it kind of gave me this, yeah, like I said, this this uh, sort of a, a bag of ammunition going into the this is my second time in the Olympics. Is mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't really care whether I win or lose or not. I'm just glad to be here. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was a good mentality for me to have going and especially to this, this second, my second Olympics in Pyeongchang, because, uh, anybody who watched my event knows I had some serious adversity on game day. So having survived all this adversity on the way to the games, uh, really kind of prepared me in a, in a, in a way that I, nothing else could have, could have prepared me. Yeah, man, I, I did. Uh, I do remember that. And then, um, 
I guess I forgot about it because then I read about it again and was like, oh yeah, that did happen. And we'll get to that in a second. But um, again, I love the way your your mental makeup, your mindset, your attitude on all these things. Obviously, bad things are going to happen and it's extremely unfortunate deaths in the family. Uh, a year-long concussion, I mean, that is clearly, that had to have been very scary to go through personally because, you know, I've heard you know, obviously it's different for everybody, um, but something that sustains that long, um, you know, being a, a fan of all major sports, essentially all sports in general. And whenever you hear something like that, some concussions are, are two, three day things. Other concussions do last a year. And those are the scary ones because you never know when you're finally going to, you know, for lack of a better term, snap out of it. Um, right. So, you know, it's just one of those things that we're, we're glad you made it through. And again, <laughs> take, yeah, well, uh, taking the adversity and being able to kind of use that and, and say, okay, well, clearly this is good. My wife has my back. She'll always be there. If I'm not mistaken, you had a daughter within that time, right? Um, son, yeah. son, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. So you had a son within that time. So there is yeah. obviously some, there's positive, a lot going on. Yeah. There's clearly a lot going on. Some po- a lot of positives to be able to take out of it and use and move use forward. And as you said, getting into the 2018 games, you took all this adversity and you understood pretty much, I mean, what's the worst that could possibly happen? And uh, clearly it didn't happen, but still one of those things was being able to kind of stay level-headed and move forward. So I guess let's just jump right into the 2018 games and we've already alluded to it a couple of times. Remind us what exactly did happen um, on, on top of the half-life those couple of days. Yeah. So the way I would describe it is. Um, as an Olympic athlete, I have one, I really, when it comes right down to it, I have one job and that is not screwing up on game day at the Olympics. You know, like if it could be simplified as much as that. And uh, so I do everything that I can to minimize risk and, and really prepare myself in every way I possibly can so that I have the best chance of, of pulling that up, not screwing up on, on the Olympic, uh, on, on the finals day at the Olympics. Um, but then there's rogue things that are completely outside your control that you just can't, I mean, you can't let those things get to you. And um, so going into, I'll, I'll take, I'll step back uh, just because mm-hmm. anybody, anybody who truly loves the Olympics um, appreciates the qualifier day just as much as the finals day, mm-hmm. especially for an event like mine where um, you take, you take a field of about 30 and, and, and narrow it down to 12. It's a pretty big cut and making finals is an accomplishment in and of itself. Um, so going into qualifiers, there was just the half pipe, I would say, describing Pyeongchang was one of the best half pipes we've ever competed in. Um, it really was sort of one of those half pipes where every day at the end of practice, you're like, wow, this is like, this is really a treat to ride. This is fun. Uh, but on qualifier day, there was one bad spot, one, one weird spot in the half pipe. And that weird spot just happened to be on what was my qualifier day runs hardest trick like the only trick that i really struggle struggle with at all in my qualifier qualification run was in this one weird spot and um so throughout practice i had um a couple of rogue things happen once one one run a ski came off so my practice run was was obviously out the door at that point crashed on a trick that i never crash on so there's another practice run out of the way um had two runs in a row where people crashed in front of me so we're only going to get about five runs of practice and four of them are out the door out the window just bundle them up throw them away move on to the next one i never once got to land that that one difficult trick uh in practice and so here I am going into going into the qualifiers at the Olympics and I'm like, Oh crap. Like this is, this is going to be more difficult than I thought. Cause I, 
I, I knew that that trick was going to be a struggle, but I also knew that I could pull it off because that's what I do, you know? And, and if anything, it's almost, it's almost a good thing to have things that are, that are, that are challenging because it keeps you focused. Uh, but part of that is sort of dependent on being able to work on it at all, being able to practice it at all. And I didn't get that chance. So I went in on my first run, crashed on that trick. And all of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy, I'm on the outside looking in, like I'm not even in finals right now. And uh, sort of moment by moment, making assessments with my coaches at the top, like, okay. Uh, I, I, and I turned to my coaches and I said, honestly, I'm not super confident on this day in this moment that I can land that trick. What do you guys think my chances are of making finals without it? And that's a pretty dangerous place to be because uh, the judges sort of get to the point where they expect, they kind of know what my run's going to be. And they, they know what to expect. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I do anything less than that, even if it's better than the field, even if it is a top 12 run in the field, they have a tendency to, judges in general, they're human. They have a tendency to judge you against yourself. So it was a dangerous, it was sort of a dangerous play. It was a little bit of a gamble. But we watched the rest of the competition. And we were like, okay, no, it's really, even if they judge me against myself, I'm still going to make finals. And that's all I cared about on that day. So I, I took that hard trick out of my run, did a, did a, you know, sort of a middle of the road, decent run, made finals and moved on. Ironically, I, uh, I dropped in 11th. I was the 11th guy to drop in that day. And when my score came up on the scoreboard, all I could see was the 11th. I couldn't see, I could see my score and I could see the 11th. And I was like, did they really just put me in 11th place? Cause I was, I was dropping in early too. So there was a bunch more guys to go. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was in 11th out of 12th. When I walked in and did my interviews, I realized I was an eighth out of 12. So that was quite a bit more of a safe spot to mm-hmm. be. But man, I was like, whoa, this might be the end of it. Like mm-hmm. this might be the end of this Olympic journey. Uh, but it wasn't, fortunately. So then we go into finals and uh, the half pipe was perfect. Uh, my, my practice couldn't have gone better. I mean, I landed my full run. I, was, I, was, I, had this, um, I had this goal of doing all four double corks, four different directions of double corks in my run at the Olympics. That's all I really set out to do. I didn't, I didn't tell myself, Oh, you have to win. You have to podium anything like that. I was just, I just came at it from what do I want to accomplish myself on a pair of skis? And that looked like it was going to, it was going to go perfectly for the, uh, for the, in the finals. I drop in for my first run and I'm literally having the best run of my life. I mean, landing, landing the hardest tricks that I've ever done, like essentially the hardest run that I've ever put together and landing it better than I ever have before. And I'm like, kind of, I'm kind of enjoying this moment. I'm like, man, this is awesome. All of a sudden my ski comes off. I mean, didn't have a bad landing, didn't have anything go wrong. Just my ski literally prematurely, we call it, we call it a pre-release. My ski pre-released, it released when it wasn't supposed to. And I was just like, so surprised. I was like, what? Hold on. Like, no, that's not supposed to happen. Like, I took care of everything inside my control, but now these things that are outside my control are happening. So, I was, but I, but I'm, I, it happens, you know, once in a while. I would say probably out of a year of competition in my sport, that happens to me maybe one, one out of, you know, if we're, if I'm going to do eight competitions or 10 competitions, it'll happen once, uh, where it just comes off for no reason. I'm not saying that's the only time my skis come off because sometimes I crash too. Sometimes I make a mistake, mm-hmm. but when it, but that, that happens, you know, the tolerances aren't that high for, uh, for landing from 20 feet in the air on, on edge mm-hmm. on an icy wall. Mm-hmm. So, our, our equipment naturally is going to have some flaws um, be just because we're, we're kind of at the cutting edge of, of what's possible uh, in a human body. So 
I wasn't that surprised. You know, I just, I just kind of brushed it off. I was like, all right, no worries. It happens once in a while. Um, switch skis because, you know, who knows, maybe it was a, maybe it was a binding flaw. Maybe it was a ski flaw, whatever. Just decided to put those skis in, in the back in the quiver, pick it, pulled out a different pair and went in for my second run. And it happened again. And all of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, this happens to be once out of 10 times in a year. And it happened to me twice in the finals at the Olympics on two different pairs of skis. What is going on here? And, you know, here I am having this sort of internal, internal turmoil, this internal conversation uh, between me and the guy upstairs. And I'm like, God, really? Like, <laughs> haven't you seen what I've gone through to get here? Like, is this going to happen to me on this day? And, um, you know, I was frustrated. I was a little angry. I was, um, I didn't, I, I never did go to the point where I was blaming other people. I just kind of, I just kind of was like, um, and I, and I'm, I'm grateful for that because it really wasn't anybody's fault. Like I said, it was, it was just one of those things that happened. Um, but I had, I did take a moment between my second and third runs and really like just went off in the forest by myself. And I was, I was praying, I was meditating, I was thinking, I was trying to stay calm. I was doing all these things kind of simultaneously. And I really felt like, um, I, I, I was able to like come to this whimsical place where I was just like, okay, this is kind of ridiculous that that happened twice. Um, and just kind of laugh about it instead of being stressed about it and just being like, you know what? It's a best of three format. It's not a best three format. It's a best of three. That means that any run can win on any given day. And I still have one more run. And that's a dangerous thing to give me is one more run through the half pipe. And so I, I just let it all roll off my shoulders and um, I went into my last run and I, and and also cranked my bindings as far down as they could go. Uh, <laughs> pretty sure that they were going to break my legs off before they came off my feet on that third run. So I had this confidence that my skis were going to stay on my feet. And I also was just, like I said, whimsical about it. I was like, all right, here we go. This is one more run. And uh, this is what I came here to do. Dropped in, landed the best run of my life, uh, skied up to the judges and screamed at the top of my lungs. That's game over. Like I, and, and I don't, I have always like told people after the fact, cause a lot of people like wondered why I said that, like, that's kind of an arrogant thing to say. And it's like, no, it wasn't, it wasn't about like putting my competitors down and saying that's game over to them. It was more like that's game over for me. Like that's what I came here to do and it's done. I couldn't believe it. I was still in disbelief. And then walking away with the, with the gold medal again at the end of the day was um, like I said, still just still surprises me to this day. Man, that is so. That story and that movie I was talking about before, I think this would make a pretty killer sequel. To be totally honest, <laughs> man, like go. that is just so cool. Um, being able to overcome, as you said, everything that happened the four years before it, everything that was happening the day or two days, however many days before the qualifiers, um, taking a risk, a huge risk that you you are very understanding of, and 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 needing to do that. And I also like the uh, comparison of the qualifiers versus the competition everything seemed like it was not quite going white right during the qualifiers and then during the first run you're having hey this is easy this is fun i got this bam this is nope. happening yeah. no, no no the universe is uh, hey we're gonna knock you back down a peg okay yeah. cool i'll do it again nope two things happen that rarely ever happen back to back but they did um and just yep. being able to say as you said talk to the man upstairs talk to the universe and understand all that and get that understanding and being able to then take that and understand like hey i've been through a lot um you know, we're at the Olympics, obviously, but you've been through a lot the last few years. Way worse things could be happening. Go out in Absolutely. a whimsical, nice place, nice head on your shoulders. Go out, crush it, and just uh, and do what you did, man. I just 
I love that. Two back-to-back, the first two events, I mean, you're sweeping it so far. So look at that. Um, You're clearly, clearly number one in the field. So, I mean, that is just absolutely incredible, man. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. I think that is just too, too great. Um, So then going back to, as we did the first time with the Olympics, compare and contrast the two, I guess. Not obviously not the racing because Nothing to compare, nothing to contrast. You won both. That's the comparison. Um, but I guess the experience around it and, and having it be your second time, was there any, did you do anything different? Um, was there anything that you were like, oh, I didn't do this a lot last time. Let me do this. Or, hey, I did this too much last time. Let me pull back. Was, how did you go into it the second time and really just making sure that you enjoyed it? But also, as we said before, staying focused and understanding what you came here to do. Yeah, there was a lot of similarities. And, and that's where um, I think that Olympic spirit I talked about earlier kind of came into play as I, I realized through going to two different Olympics um, that the Olympics in general, the, the Olympics in and of itself uh, is its own thing. You know, the, the fact that they were two completely different countries, couldn't the countries couldn't have been more different between the two Olympics that I've gone to. Uh, but there was still the same feel kind of showed me, Hey, this is the Olympics. Like this is something that this is something uh, that can't be compared to anything else. So um, a lot of things were really similar um, I would say that, um, both, um, I had positive experiences with the host country both times. A lot of people had negative experiences in Sochi. I never had those. I, w- I was lucky, I guess, in that sense. Um, but, uh, Korea was an amazing host. Um, you know, just the culture there, the, the kindness, the, the generosity of the people. Um, I was really sort of pleasantly surprised by that. Um, as well as, uh, for one thing, I made sure to go to the, the closing ceremonies the second time around. Cause that was one thing that I didn't do the first time is I won my event and, um, I, I got an opportunity to go on Ellen, but I was going to have to leave early to go on Ellen. And I was like, well, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm going to go mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time around, since my event was right towards the end, I was like, no, screw it. I don't care what opportunities I'm, I'm going to get. I'm going to go to the closing ceremonies. And that was worth doing for me because, um, I had seen two opening ceremonies, but I had seen zero closing ceremonies at that point. And the closing ceremonies have a totally different feel than the opening ceremonies. Opening ceremonies, everybody's enjoying it, but they're kind of stressed. Like there's kind of this underlying like, oh crap, we're at the Olympics. We have, we have to perform well. There's like a little bit of anxiety under the surface, but at closing ceremonies, everybody's done for better or for worse. Everybody's ready to party. And it was just a really cool experience, you know, hanging out with all of my fellow Team USA uh, athletes as well as athletes from around the world and just being part of that, that celebration. Like we, we did it. We're closing the Olympics down. Um, so that was, that was worth doing for me for sure. Uh, other than that, like I said, I feel like it was actually very similar experiences. You know, there were, um, the both athlete villages were, were really quite similar. Um, yeah, that was, it was, it was pretty hey, if it's not, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Like if yeah. you had a good time the first time and clearly you did, especially winning, um, just do it again. And yeah. someone tells me it's going to come out on top and again, you did. So congratulations to that, man. So um, that's just two awesome, two gold medals back to back. Doesn't happen too often, but uh, you can etch your name into the record books there, David. I congratulate you. Um, you. So a couple more minutes. I just have a few more topics that I'd like to talk about. Obviously, um, as you and I spoke a little bit before the phone call or before this interview, athlete. Um, you know, you started professionally when you were 18 and you knew going into it, this isn't something that you can do until 60 or 70 naturally, or at least specifically mm-hmm. compete. What is, I guess, first, what are the prospects of 2022? Is that something that you're dead set on and, and, and gunning for? And then 
if there is a, a post career career, what is something that you're looking towards to to enjoy? Because I mean, you're only 27. I mean, I'm I'm 26. I'm not trying to kick you out of the sport yet. But I just <laughs> like to understand, you know, what the the future might be holding for someone like you. Yeah. See, I feel like I'm just getting warmed up. Love um, it. There we go. You know, and and I I'm actually the old guy on the team right now. I'm the old guy. I'm getting to be one of the oldest guys in the sport, even uh, at the top level, because it is, it's a, it's a rough sport on your body. And the reality is too, uh, in my sport, there's not a great, there's not a great opportunity to make a lot of money. If you're not one of the top guys in the game, um, you're pretty much paying to play. So part of the reason that I'm one of the older guys in the sport isn't because people can't do this sport at an older age. I mean, the human body physically peaks at 30, you know, early thirties. Right. So I'm not even at my physical strength peak yet or at my endurance peak yet. Mm -hmm. So, um, I always tell, I always remind people of that when they say, Oh, you're getting pretty old. I'm like, Hey, I haven't even gotten to my physical strength peak yet. Like just wait. And, um, but, but it's hard to keep going in a sport that you can't really make any money at when you're kind of in that mid twenties, mid to late twenties age group. So a lot of guys, you know, they go to college, they move on and that's great. I, and, and, and I encourage people who, uh, if it's not in their DNA to, to, to give everything. And like you said, take that gamble, uh, and, and really put all the cards on the table then, then that's good. It's actually healthy for you to move on uh, rather than hanging on and, and just feeling like you're middle of the pack for a long period of time. I don't think that's a very healthy approach uh, to, to this sport. So I feel like I'm just getting warmed up. But like I said, I'm, I'm fortunate to be one of the guys who's towards the top of the game, you know, making money. I, I, I support myself and my family just off of skiing. So um, I'm lucky to be able to do that. And I'm enjoying the ride right now. I still have some things that I want to innovate. I still have some things that I want to do. And, uh, I'm, I'm in it at least for the next, uh, Olympic cycle and, and we'll reassess after that, uh, in terms of preparation for the future, uh, I kind of simultaneously have all these other things that I'm, that I'm planning for, because I do, uh, I do know, especially having been in this game for as long as I have, I do know that it's not going to last forever. I've watched my friends kind of have their, have their high times and then fade out of the sport. So um, I know that there's going to, there has to be an afterwards and, and it's better to prepare for that. It's better to be prepared for that sooner rather than later. So, um, I'm doing a couple things on my end just to prepare for whatever it is I want to do next. I'm, I've been pretty lucky. I've gotten to do what I love for a living for a long time now. Uh, and I don't really want to give that up. So, um, I started competing in archery these last couple of years. Um, that's something that I'm looking forward to doing when my ski career winds down a little bit more full time, uh, competing in archery potentially making a run at the summer Olympics, uh, in the long, long distant future. Um, as well as, uh, I'm doing some, so quite a bit more YouTube stuff. Uh, my wife and I just started a new channel called wise off the grid on YouTube. And, uh, the concept there being that, um, here we are, we're a, we're a family in the spotlight. Um, but I really feel like we're an everyday ordinary average American family. You know, we go to the grocery store for our food, um, we drive gas powered vehicles, but during my career as a professional skier, I've literally watched, um, the, <clears throat> I've watched winters get shorter. I've watched, uh, I've watched the environment change before my eyes. And I realized if my kids are going to be able to ski, to ski their whole lives, and if they're going to be able to raise their kids skiing, we have to do something. And that, that starts from a, you know, that's, that, that starts from a political level, but it goes, it comes all the way back down to a personal level. So on a personal level, my wife and I have this 10 year goal of being completely off the grid. We want to do solar power, wind power, 
um, grow almost all of our food, grow or trade for all of our food, um, and and only eat things that we've that we've hunted or raised ourselves. So it's this crazy journey going from a normal American family to a completely off the grid family, and that so that's one of that's one of our you know future career paths is we're gonna we're gonna document that whole journey on YouTube and let people kind of tag along for the journey, uh, help let let people kind of contribute to the journeys and and suggest us suggest ideas of their own or how we can be more off the grid, etc. So we're working on that. Um, I'm also writing quite a bit more these days. I've just published a children's book. Um, I feel like I, that's, that's, that's kind of the list. That's the list of things. Oh, uh, I probably will go back to, um, because we've been talking, I think it's appropriate for me to mention this now, because we've been talking so much about the mental strength uh, and the mental aspect of competition, um, when my ski career winds down and I have a little bit more time on my hands, I'm gonna go back to school and uh, try to get a master's in psychology and potentially spend some of my time. I, I, have this, I have this dream or goal of not having a full-time job in any aspect, but having a lot of part-time jobs. Mm -hmm. So that, because I'm like a, I'm a really passionate person, but I, I get kind of, I kind of struggle with just having one thing at a time. Like mm -hmm. I like, I like juggling things. So, um, but I'd like to spend some time as, as almost like a, a sports counselor. Uh, not necessarily just a sports psychologist, because I think sports psychology gets a little bit focused around um, performance and competition. Uh, like, you know, a team will hire a sports psychologist because they want their team to perform best on the court. Um, but I think that there could be a little bit more of a long-term holistic ap approach to just mental health from in the in the athletic realm, um, because I know a lot of athletes who are mentally unstable and just kind of lost once, once their sport winds down, they don't really know who they are. And that's something that I feel like I, I have the ability and the platform to speak into. So, um, yeah, that's, those are my, uh, those are my future goals. Yes, man. That, that's some lofty goals. I love it. I, I set mean, lofty goals. That's one I thing. Love, I hey, man. I mean, you, you're just short of a lofty goal. You hit a pretty incredible goal either way. So, I mean, I, you know, shoot for the stars, lens on the clouds kind of thing. Um, I really like that, the YouTube idea. I think that's really cool. Um, that will 100% be in the show notes. So everyone, make sure you check that out. Um, that sounds like a fun fun i guess is one word you could use yeah, a little project that's, the, that's the point and i mean tie it in with archery there you go you can find some food along the way get better at your next potential sport i mean i think yeah. that's pretty cool man um i do have here that you wrote down the wrote a book um i definitely want to get to that but also the the sports psych side and the sports counseling as you said that is one thing that um i agree with you on it's it's so frustrating to see people dedicate so much of their life to something i mean especially for you you started skiing at three you started competing at 11 i mean when it comes to an end there's some people that don't have all the goals that you have and don't have the mental makeup and the mental attitude and 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 fortitude moving forward so sometimes when it ends it's it's a crash and a burn unfortunately it's a huge it's, crash yeah you know so it's it's something and it's understandable i mean you've dedicated so much of your life to something you've been doing something every day and then you're told sorry you're not you're not good enough or you're not capable, you know, an injury case to do this anymore. And it's, it's, it's depressing for a lot of people and it's extremely understood. So, I mean, I think that's great that you're being able to give back in that sense as well. Um, so I'm excited to, uh, you know, root you on in that path too, but Hey, as you said, we still got at least a minimum of four more years. So that's as I right. said, yeah. I'm not trying to kick you out of the sport, man. Keep rocking and rolling. You got the ability to do it. Let's keep doing it. You can't it. kick me out, man. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, but tell me about this book. I thought that that was really interesting when I saw that. What um, you wrote a children's book. It, I saw it was about a bear. 
tell yeah. us a little bit, tell us a little bit about that, where that came from, and uh, I guess uh, give us give us the plot without uh, ruining with with no spoilers. How's that sound? Spoiler spoiler free <laughs> plot. Yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of cool because uh, I've I've always been at, at some point when I was a kid I fell in love with stories, and I've always been kind of a voracious reader which um, I don't know too many other athletes that are voracious readers like I am. So that's something that I feel like kind of differentiates me from the pack and, and, and probably contributes to, to all the mental stuff we've been talking about. Um, just my fascination with stories and, and with uh, I'm, I'm a people reader. I like, I like sitting there and people watching. I like trying to figure out how people, people tick, why they do what they do. And um, I'm also a pretty introspective person because of that. I'm, I'm okay with spending time by myself and just thinking and wondering how it is I feel about something. A lot of, a lot of people in the spotlight tend to spend a lot of time not thinking because they, they feel like they, they, they almost develop this addiction to uh, being going a hundred, a hundred miles an hour, you know, going a hundred percent at all times. And as soon as they have those quiet moments, they're like, ah, oh, I don't know what to do with myself. I got to do something else. Uh, whereas I've always been comfortable alone. I've always been comfortable, uh, in the quiet places. And, um, so I have quite a few, I've, I've probably three, three books that I've started and am never going to finish because, uh, I'm my own worst critic. Like as soon as I get, as soon as I get into something and start reading it, I'm like, now this is garbage. And then I throw it out and move on to the next thing. Um, but I've always had this dream or this desire to be in, to be an author as well as an athlete. And uh, my daughter actually can take credit for helping me pull that off because um, she was the one who, it started out as I would tell her stories on the road. Cause uh, when my daughter was born, she and my wife would come to all the events. Uh, we've since now we have two kids. Um, they don't travel with me quite as much as they used to, but um, early on, she, they would go everywhere. And we, inevitably, we would run out of books to read or whatever for bedtime stories. I would just make up these random stories. And my daughter got to the point where she liked the stories I would make up better than she liked the books because the stories that I would make up could include her as a character. Mm -hmm. or she had all kinds of she could she could, you know, contribute to the plot or she could say, no, I don't want that to happen. Let's have this happen. Anyways, she always loved those stories. And, and one story in particular, she kept asking for over and over and over again. That was this story about a butterfly and a bear. What she didn't know, but I did, was that that story about the butterfly and the bear was about me and my wife. And uh, my wife's nickname for me is bear and my nickname for her is butterfly. I always called her the butterfly because I felt like she never touched the ground. When she walked around the room, she just had this, this uh, positive energy, this floating around the room. And she called me the bear because... Um, I sort of encompass all the all the aspects of Bear's personality. I can be playful and cuddly and and kind, and I can also be grumpy and um, eat a lot, mm -hmm. and you know, just all all these things and sleep, sleep for and days. Whatever. So um, that's what that story was about. And mm -hmm. uh, so, but but my daughter just liked the story. She didn't even know it was about me and my wife. She just liked that one the most. So she would ask for it over and over again. With each telling, it became more elaborate. And one day she said, Daddy, why isn't your story a book? And I said, you're right. Why not? Light bulb. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I wrote it down. Uh, one of my friends who is a tattoo artist and has, has done some work with, that I've worked with over the years. Um, he's also done some graphic design uh, for some ski graphics that I've done. Um, he did the illustrations. Harry Lau, you guys can follow him on Instagram. His uh, Instagram is Harry Bear Tattoo. Um, he's a really talented tattoo artist, but he's also an amazing illustrator. Uh, so they kind of have this action sports edge to them. The illustrations aren't, they're not quite your fluffy, you know, children's book, 
that just came out of the butterflies and the rainbows uh, as much as, you know, they're kind of, it's kind of my story. It's like, it is a little bit edgy. The, the drawings are a little bit uh, more, have a little bit darker side to them, um, but the story is still there. And, and it's kind of uh, the plot, I guess, because you asked for a non-spoiled plot, uh, <laughs> is that uh, I've already kind of talked about it in the podcast, but it, can, it comes down to the fact that um, I didn't really know who I was. I wasn't really aware of who I was until my wife came into my life because I was so caught up in skiing and so caught up in this need for success uh, that I would ignore everything else that was happening around me. I would ignore the people around me. I would ignore all of the amazing things that I had uh, because I was one-minded focused on success. And uh, it wasn't until the butterfly flew into my life that I realized, wow, I'm actually one of the luckiest guys alive without the success. Uh, in spite of the success, I am so fortunate. And that's what, that's what sort of provided the mental fortitude mm -hmm. that I have to be able to, to perform well, uh, to be able to compete well, was this, this, this concept that I'm, that I can be joyful no matter what's going on in life. And, um, I always sign that book when I'm signing for people, uh, life will have its ups and downs. Like we talked about earlier, life is going to have difficult times and, and, and easy times. It's going to have, um, it's going to have sunsets and it's also going to have dark times right before the dawn. Uh, but you can choose joy. So I always, I always write down life will have its ups and downs, choose joy because joy is a choice. Um, we can be content with nothing. And if you can't be content with nothing, you're not going to be content with everything. That's one thing that I've told a lot of people because I, I see our society has this has this fascination with, um, worldly success. They say, okay, well, you know, if I have that, then I'll be happy. If I have that car, then I'll be happy. If I have that husband, then I'll be happy. If I have the most beautiful wife in the world, then I'll be happy. But the reality is if you're not happy before you have it, you're not going to be happy after. Uh, and I've watched that happen for a lot of my friends. It's like, oh, they finally got to where they were going and they realized it wasn't as satisfying as they thought it was going to be when they get there. So, um, yeah, choose joy now and choose to be content now. I'm not saying don't be hungry. Uh, I'm still hungry. I'm, I'm two, two Olympic gold medals into this and I'm still hungry. I still have, like I said, things I want to innovate, things I want to do, things I want to accomplish. Um, but I'm also very content where I'm at. I'm very, I feel very thankful for everything that I have. I love it, man. I mean, that's such a great story. Uh, you definitely did uh, give us a little bit of spoilers earlier on, but we didn't know you were spoiling the story for us. So yeah, it's, it's exactly. okay. But no, I love that. That's great. Um, just going back to, again, the mental aspects of it, it seems like you're clearly um, – no one's ever perfect at that, but it seems like that's something you work on continuously and making sure that people understand. Yes, as you said, I really love that. If you're, if you're not content with nothing, you're not going to be content with everything. Um, so yeah. I, I really, I agree with that. Um, and, uh, you know, something that I work on every single day and hopefully uh, just continue to get better and better at it. I'll make sure Harry, um, his, his, uh, his page is shouted out in there, the book. Um, I don't know if there's an Amazon link or if there's a specific link you got. Just um, I'll make sure that's in there as well, as yeah. well as all your socials, of course, um, including the, uh, the YouTube page just made sure I circled that one more time. But sure. one last thing I know I've kept you for a little while today, but I know this is important to you. Um, I saw on your website that you were donating a, a percentage of your proceeds to the one leg up on life foundation or, or whatever exactly the charity mm -hmm. that is explain a little bit about what that is and really what it means to you and why you're doing, you know, giving so much of your earnings to this foundation. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier in the podcast that my sister lost her leg. Um, I have a sister who is an air force pilot and um, was in, unfortunately in a boating accident and lost her leg at the knee. Um, so she's an above knee amputee. She's actually the only female above knee amputee uh, pilot to return to full active duty. Um, 
but through that process, going through that and, and sort of um, going through one of what, is, what was one of the hardest days of my life, and for sure for her, it was the hardest day of her life. Um, all of a sudden, you know, my, my adventure buddy, my, my sister Christy was the one who I would always jump off things with or go on these crazy uh, adventures with. Um, having my adventure buddy uh, lose a leg and, and sort of being kind of conscious that all of a sudden all these things we used to do together she can't do um, but then not getting caught up in that you know we we didn't allow ourselves to get caught up in that we kind of uh, I, I I feel like my main job my the main way that I could help her through that difficult time in her life was to remind her hey there still are a lot of things that you can do uh, you know, from running to, you know, riding a bike to getting back on skis, all these things that she could still do as an above knee amputee. Um, and each one of those things that we, each one of those items we ticked off the list sort of contributed to her, her, her happiness or her, mm-hmm. her ability to be content with, with where she was at. And um, my other sister is a surgeon and she has spent quite a bit of time of her time volunteering in the Dominican Republic in Haiti. And so all of a sudden we had these, these different connections or a whole new level of connection to uh, kids that were in the earthquake in Haiti uh, that were amputees because we, we've always, we've, as a family, we've, we've supported those kids for a long time through Jessica, uh, my other sister, who's a surgeon. Uh, but we didn't have quite as close of a, of a, of a spiritual connection to it. Whereas now we have a, I have a sister who is an amputee and another sister who works with amputees. And um, so they started the, the One Leg Up on Life Foundation. Uh, you can find it at onelegupunlife.org. And um, <clears throat> the concept being that uh, everybody who is an amputee needs to gain some of their life back. They need to gain, they need to, they need to, um, they need to feel like they're not just uh disabled like they're actually enabled to do things um one of my other friends mike schultz is an adaptive athlete and he and i always talk about how people refer to them as as disabled but he prefers the term adaptive because adaptive means that you're still attacking you're still out there doing what you want to do you just have to adapt and uh, so that's what the concept of one leg up on life is that is that um they're my sisters through their their foundation are providing a better life for people in the third world who, who wouldn't be able to provide it for themselves. Uh, the reality is in the US, we're all pretty fortunate. Um, we have a lot more than the rest of the world does, and we have access to good healthcare, and we have the ability to, um, to, do, to get back into things when we have an unfortunate accident like my sister did, but not everybody else does. So um, they, they really have a heart for the third world and, and helping provide better prosthetics to kids in the third world. Um, they've done four or five trips now down to the, to the Dominican, Dominican Republic in Haiti and they're, um, they've, they've, they've done everything from, you know, uh, fixing things that are broken or that the, that the, the people down there don't have the parts to fix to, um, providing kids with their first ever running leg. Like my sister got to, got to run with a kid for his first time since the, since the earthquake in 2011. Um, so that's pretty cool being able to be a part of that. That is, and that's so all, yeah, I'll, sorry. I forgot no, this is all your the, story. All man. last season, all last season, I, uh, I partnered with them and, you know, part of my Olympic success, I felt like I got to, uh, share that journey with, with the world because, um, every contest from beginning to end, uh, I provide, I donate 10% of my winnings, uh, both sponsorships and, and contest payouts to their organization and, and, and sort of, 
uh, encourage people to do the same, to join me in that. Whether you may, you know, for each competition, I encourage people that week, whatever you made that week, whether it was five bucks or 5,000, uh, give 10% to, to their organization and, and try to make a difference in the world. And I'm going to continue that going into 2019 and probably all the way through the next Olympics. Love it, man. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, clearly you're part of a very good, uh, uh, family of, of some pretty great people. Um, you know, unfortunately for your sister, but also congratulations to her for being able to come all the way back from that and then start something like this with your other sister. And, and as you said, having that actual connection really brings you in a lot closer. Um, you know, there's only uh, just just that extra, as you said, spiritual connection can really do a lot. So, um, thank you for that. I I love the explanation again, a hundred percent. That's going to be in the the show notes. Hopefully we get a couple extra dollars from it as well. So I, I, uh, I appreciate that. So, um, David, that's about it for me, man. One more time, David Wise, USA uh, free skiing half pipe, the only two-time gold medal win- winner um, at the Olympics in this sport because there's only been two. So we're sweeping it next yeah. time. Three, Pete. I'm gonna cross my fingers for you there, man. Yeah. Hey, man. Right. Thank you so much for your time today. I sincerely appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Athletes with David Wise. As I said, it was absolutely incredible. He's such a cool dude. He's got so many things going on. So very happy, very grateful that you were able to listen to this. Please make sure to go follow him on all his socials, which will be in the show notes. Please follow us on Instagram at ourathletes.us and Twitter at ourathletesusa. Make sure to send me any emails, I guess. Some people still communicate like that. Michael dot, uh, Michael at ourathletes.us. Check out the website, www.ourathletes.us. And uh, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, share, review, rate, whatever you got to do to get this podcast just bumped up a little bit more so um, the rest of the country and around the world, I guess, can listen to what our Olympic, amazing elite Olympic athletes are doing. So without further ado, thank you guys so much. I hope you have a wonderful day.